0: all right so um take a deep breath okay you can let it out we're going to talk about the story of lot we have been uh preaching a series on father abraham and we're focusing on the promises that god made to abraham and we've been saying these out loud each and every week so we're going to say them out loud again so that we can all remember god promised abraham a name, a land, a son, and a promise. Okay, Abraham did not earn these promises, he didn't merit them, he wasn't so righteous that God decided to give him these promises as a reward, he just made them, made them to Abraham. And in the first sermon we talked about how Abraham would be a nobody, he, we, we wouldn't even know who he is without these promises. In the second sermon, we talked about how uh, there was a threat not to uh, uh, the promise of the land for Abraham, but uh, a threat to his family. And by God's grace, God protected Abraham's family while he was in Egypt. Now, this week, we're talking specifically about the promise that God made uh, for Abraham to have a son. Now, in chapter 12 of Genesis, God promised that he would make Abraham into a great Nation And God said, I will give the land to your offspring, okay, to your seed. But at the time of the promise, God isn't very specific about who this seed is going to be, who the offspring is going to be. So if, if you're Abraham and you don't know exactly who this is, you could forgive him for thinking that his nephew Lot, who's with, living with him at the time, is going to be this heir, right? For, for Abraham, he might think, this nephew who's living with me, is, is going to be the one that I pass on all of my inheritance to. Can't I just adopt him, call him my son, and pass over the, the covenant that God made to me to Lot? Okay? So, throughout the book of Genesis, unfortunately, we see that this nephew, Lot, is not the one who God had in mind. Over the course of his li- life, Lot makes a lot of very tragic decisions, and we know that he's not the recipient of the covenant. Now, As we heard read this morning from chapter 13 all the way to chapter 19, Lot's story is contained in there, so we don't have enough time this morning to go verse by verse. We're going to kind of look over the course of his life from chapter 13 to 19 in four different acts. We're going to do a little bit of theater this morning, okay? I'm going to give you kind of the summaries of each of these acts to see where his life goes. And what's so important is that even though Lot's story looks doomed, Even though his story looks like it's going to end in tragedy, there actually is one note of hope. Because after Genesis 19, Lot is referenced one time. One time he's talked about in the New Testament. And the one word used about him three times in that book is going to surprise you. You may find it impossible to believe but I think this one word in the New Testament is going to tell us a lot about God. And I want to lead off with this idea before we get into Lot's life. The stories that God writes are full of surprise endings. As human beings, we think we know how the story is going to end. And we think that it's all despair, it's all hopelessness, and then God turns things around. We think that certain people's endings are doomed, and right in that very moment, God acts, he intervenes, and he changes the story. There are people that we think their story looks like a guaranteed failure, and Lot fits into that category, but you've got to stick around for the end. Now, uh, let's get into the first act of Lot's story. We'll call it the nephew's greed. Last week we saw Abram and his wife Sarai leave Egypt, and when they leave Egypt, they are much wealthier than when they had arrived. Pharaoh gave them a lot of, of herds and livestock, and so that doesn't just bless Abraham, it also blesses his nephew Lot. But there's a big problem. We read in Genesis 13 that the land can't support both of them while they stay together. Their possessions are so great that that's not possible. Now, this verse up on the screen doesn't mean that they fill the entire promised land like every square foot. It, that, that would be ridiculous. It just means that these these herdsmen and servants of Abraham and Lot have all this petty competition and squabbles. And they need to figure out a plan. They need to figure out a solution. And so we read in verse 13 or in chapter 13 that quarreling arose between them. And so Abram suggests this. Let's not have any quarreling between you and me, between your herdsmen and mine, for we're relatives, we're family, we're kin. It's not the whole land before you. Let's just part company. And then he gives Lot first dibs. He says, if you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Okay? Now, here's the problem. This is a good solution to an understandable problem, but Lot actually doesn't listen to the suggestion. We read, Lot looked around, and he didn't look within the land, the promised land. He looks to the whole plain of the Jordan, toward Zoar, which he says is well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. Okay, everything in the story so far is telling us that this is a bad decision. First of all, Lot is separating himself from Abraham. And God said to Abraham in chapter 12, I'm going to bless the whole world through who? Through Abraham. And guess what Lot is doing? He's disconnecting himself from the the man of promise, the man of blessing. Okay? Second, I think this is a really big issue. He chooses somewhere outside of the promised land. He doesn't choose an area within the promised land. He leaves it entirely. And third, this is is so important. Those details are so crucial. He sees with his eyes that things are well watered. This is like the Garden of Eden. This is like the land of Egypt, which is so fertile because of the Nile River. Okay, these details are so crucial. This is just like Eve looking at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right? I don't know if you remember this from Genesis chapter 3, but Eve sees that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. I think Lot is making the exact same decision that Eve made. He's greedy, he sees something he wants, and he tries to take it. And so he decides to leave Abram. Leave everything behind, and we read this, this last uh, uh, verse in chapter 13. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and sinning greatly against the Lord. Okay, This is act one of Lot's story. He separates himself from the man of promise, the promised land, and he goes and follows his greedy eyes. Okay? Then act two gets worse. We'll call act two the uncle's army. As soon as Lot moves to Sodom, we find out that he gets caught up in a huge mess. And we could go into all the details of this this war that he gets involved in. But the fact is that when he moves to Sodom, he's now under the king of Sodom. And when the king of Sodom goes to war, guess what happens? Lot is now involved in that war. We find out that his king goes to battle. He loses the battle and Lot and all of his possessions get carried off in the war. We read, they carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. Okay, One man escapes this battle, Okay, and he reports the bad news to Abraham. And if you're Abraham, you've got to think, this is my nephew. This is the one candidate for my heir who could be the promised son that God was talking about. If he dies, I have no one left. Me and Sarah don't have any kids of our own. What are we going to do? And so he decides that he's going to take action. In Genesis 14, we read that he calls out 318 trained men born in his house and pursues this this enemy force as far as the land of Dan. During the night, Abram divides his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and all of his possessions. Okay, why does Abraham go through all this trouble to save his nephew? Because he thinks maybe this is the promised son that God was talking about. Now, think about this from Lot's perspective, right? He looked over this plain and he says, it's well watered. This is like the Garden of Eden. And guess what? The first thing that happens when he moves there, he gets caught up in all these unforeseen consequences. You think he might say, time for me to move back with Uncle Abe, right? Things were better when I lived with him. Right? I was blessed when I was around him, and now I feel cursed. Now I'm far from the man of promise. But the problem is, Lot doesn't change. We see another tragedy in Act, in act 3. Lot is living in sodom and we find out that he is sitting at the gate of the city now for 21st century readers that detail doesn't mean anything but at the time if you were high up in the city if you were uh, a, a local judge or a leader or a chief you sat at the gate of the city so lot didn't just move back to sodom he rose in the ranks of sodom okay and this is when the two angels visit the city now Lot knows how dangerous it is to be in this city. He tells these men who come to him, please turn aside to your servant's house. And they say, no, we're going to spend the night in the square. He knows what that means for them. And so he insists so strongly in Genesis 19, come with me, enter my house. Now, we read in chapter 19, before they even got to bed, we're talking a couple of hours into this city, All the men from every part of the city of Sodom surround Lot's house. They call to him from outside the house. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Okay? This is a roving gang seeking sexual violence against two strangers to the city. I feel like this justifies the previous verse that this, this city is kind of messed up. They want to violate these two guests to the city. And at first you think, okay, Lot does the right thing. He's housing these two visitors, and he says, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. And then all of the credit that we might give to him is immediately washed away because of his suggestion. He says, look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Okay. As a father of a daughter, this is impossible for me to even fathom. He is throwing his own daughters to the wolves to protect these two men. It's insane. It's evil. It's reprehensible. And this is what this is who Lot has become. Right in Genesis 13, Lot was blessed. He was with Abram. He was in the promised land. Look at the man he's become over these years and over these chapters. Now, Fortunately, these are not just any two men. They are angels sent from God. We find out that they strike the men who are at the door of the house, both young and old, with blindness, so that they could not find the door. We realize that the city is in imminent danger. God is about to... Judge this city and destroy it. And the angels say, do do you have anyone else here, whether it's sons-in-law or daughters, anyone else in the city who belongs to you? you just got to get them out of here. We are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against the people is so great, he has sent us to destroy it. Okay. When Lot goes to find his sons-in-law, they don't even take him seriously. And we actually see that Lot hesitates throughout this whole ordeal. We don't know why, but the angels keep telling him, this is code red. This city is about to be up in flames. You need to get out now. And he's dithering. He's hesitating. He doesn't leave when they tell him to leave. They say, hurry. Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or else you will be swept away when the city is punished. Okay, let's pause for a second. Lot and his family are being saved from this city's destruction. Has Lot in any of these chapters ever proved that he was worthy of this salvation? I don't think so. There is no evidence that he was some righteous person, separate uh, and apart from, from all the other people. It's so confusing why he was chosen. But then we read in chapter 19. The reason why it says the lord was merciful to them this is the only reason why Lot and his family are saved god is merciful he saves this man who doesn't deserve it one of the craziest parts of this story is that they're running out of the city of sodom and the angel says okay flee up to the mountains you need to get as much distance between sodom and you as possible because this place is is going to be wiped off the face of the earth, and Lot, I'm not exaggerating, he says this. To the angels, he says, look, here's a town near enough to run to. It's small, let me flee to that place. It's very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. Y'all, this week, I was trying to think of any possible analogy to show how crazy Lot is in this situation. And I thought, okay, let's say you're in England, it's World War II, and German bombers are flying over the city, you hear all the alarms, what do you do? Do you sit outside and look at all the different shelters and think, maybe I should go to that one, maybe I should go to this other one. No, you pick the closest shelter, you run to that one, and hope that you don't die. And Lot's like, what's my preferred shelter here? This is insane. Lot, is not taking this seriously, he doesn't deserve it, and yet for some reason the angels let him live. God saves Lot without any goodness on his part. Now, I know a preacher shouldn't do this, but I actually hid part of the story from you. In chapter 18, Abraham prayed prayed for God to not destroy To not destroy Sodom. We read, When God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. That's Act 3. And somehow, Act 4 gets worse. After Lot and his daughters are saved from this demise, of the city. We read, and I cannot comprehend this, I cannot explain it, it's in the Bible, I don't get to decide what's in the Bible. His two two daughters say this, there is no man around here to give us children as is the custom all over the earth. Let's get our father to drink wine and then sleep with him and preserve our family line through our father. This is where Lot's life ends up. He followed his greed to a land he thought was well watered, he ends up as plunder in a war, and fortunately rescued by his uncle, he is saved even though he is hesitant as God's angels drag him out of the city, and then finally he ends up in this humiliation of drunkenness and incest. At this point, doesn't his story just seem doomed? I mean, like, what what could possibly redeem this story? It seems hopeless. But as I was researching Lot this week, I found out that he's mentioned a couple of times in the New Testament. 2,000 years after Abraham and Lot are all dead and gone, a follower of Jesus wrote this about Lot. This is from 2 Peter chapter 2. God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes, and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And then, he writes this, God rescued Lot, what kind of man? Say that word out loud. Righteous. A righteous man, who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, and that. Second time, righteous man, living among them day after day, was tormented in his what soul? Righteous soul. By the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Y'all, I read this passage ten times. How can the New Testament look back and call Lot righteous? I mean, I can think of a lot of adjectives. For lot. But righteous wasn't high up on the list. But here's the thing. What did we say at the beginning? The stories that God writes are full of surprise endings. Okay? And that means that grace, God's forgiveness, was not invented recently. Since the very first book of the Bible, God has been doing two things saving the undeserving, and making sinners righteous. Lot is not righteous of his own accord. He wasn't saved because he deserved it. God saves the undeserving, and he makes sinners righteous. And we know, not from Paul's letters for the first time, we know from the book of Genesis, how sinners are made righteous. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, we read Abram believed the Lord, And God credited to him as what? Righteousness. We are not righteous by our own good merits. We are not righteous by looking back over all of our sins and picking out maybe the few good things we've done. Whatever faith we have, God credits that faith as righteousness to us. Lot's faith was mixed with a lot of hesitation, a lot of selfishness, a lot of greed, a lot of decisions. I'm sure he regretted But however much faith he had in God, whether it was small as a mustard seed, that was enough for the New Testament to label him righteous three times over. And y'all, if that's not encouraging to us today, I don't know what is. I think many of us are taught from a very young age that there are basically two categories of people. I'll put them up on the screen. There's good people and there's bad people. In the good people category, we put famous people like Mother Teresa, who served the poor in India. We think of Gandhi, maybe Martin Luther King Jr., and then we fill it up with people we admire. Those are the good people category. In the bad people category, we put the worst dictators of human history, Hitler and Stalin. Maybe you put sociopaths in there too. And then maybe you fill it up with also people you don't like. There's good people and there's bad people. These categories are not Christian categories. The basic Christian category for all of us after Adam and Eve is sinner. We all belong to that category. And it means that inevitably we will do things like Lot did. We'll be greedy, we'll be selfish, we'll be caught up in consequences we couldn't have foreseen. We need to move past this way of thinking. Because here's the thing, we're already like lots. We're already guided by our eyes by a decision we think is best. We're already caught up in a bunch of bad mistakes we, we didn't calculate ahead of time. We already put others in dangers because of our selfishness. And like Lot, we have to bank on God's grace. There's nothing else to rely on um one of my favorite books is called silence okay it's written by a japanese christian man um, and uh, he wrote this book it's it's a fictional novel but it actually talks about kind of real historical events in the 1600s there were japanese christians who were being persecuted and um and so lots of portuguese uh, ministers would be would go to japan to help these christians who were being persecuted there and there's a movie by Martin Scorsese that, that takes this book, Silence, and brings it to life. And it's one of the most compelling movies I've ever watched. Um, when the priests uh, arrive in Japan, uh, they meet this drunken Japanese Christian named Kichijiro. Okay? And it is very tempting to hate this guy throughout the whole movie. He's a traitor. He... Always, everything he does is always about saving his own skin. And if you, if you ever watch the movie, it's, it's really hard to watch. But he always, is always so selfish. And you might think as you watch the movie, he's such a Judas. But that's the wrong take. He's just like you and me. He's not a bad Christian. He's a typical Christian. The question for us is not will we fall short after we're baptized? We know the answer ahead of time. Of course we will. The question is after we fail, after we fall short, after we disobey Jesus, will we fall back before Him and beg for mercy? Will we seek forgiveness? Will we have this much sliver of faith that to us? I was thinking about the the phrase that Jesus so often uses in the Gospels, you of little faith. Have you heard that phrase before? Raise your hand if you use, oh, ye of little faith. Okay. I thought about that this week, and I thought, you know, there are a lot of people in heaven who had that much faith. Just a little bit. The disciples, they were told that they were of little faith. And if the apostles had little faith and were saved, and Lot apparently had enough faith to be called righteous three times, then maybe we have hope too. After we fail, the question is, will we fall before our Lord and ask him for mercy once again? Because the good news is that he always shows mercy to those who repent. Let's pray together this morning. Father, as we look over the story of Lot, as we see the tragic decisions he makes, some of us may feel convicted that throughout our lives we've been like Lot. We've made all these these bad decisions and been caught up in unforeseen consequences and we're, we're at the end of our lives and we just think, Is there any hope for this to be redeemed? Is there any hope for this to change or to be turned around? Maybe some of us look at the story of Lot and think, I'm so glad I'm not like him. I'm so glad I've made good decisions. I'm so glad I've been a good person. But the fact is that all of us are like Lot in one way or another. We all struggle with greed. We all struggle with pride. We all struggle with selfishness. We all get caught up in messes that we never intended to make. And if he had enough faith to be called righteous, we pray for that faith. We pray that we would continue to go back to you and beg for mercy again. Because we know it's in your character to show mercy to us. Father, we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.